us last night? Never mind. This morning we'll talk about regeneration in the mind. What happens at the moment of regeneration and how does it impact the mind of a believer? Because I think it's essential to understand that, what it means and what it doesn't mean. Otherwise, again, I think you get into real trouble as you walk through this life as a, as a believer. Let me just say for the point of clarity... In the event that there's somebody here who is not in Christ, when I talk about regeneration, it's the reality that, that uh, God and God alone opens blind eyes, brings a person to the understanding of their own sinfulness and the holiness of God. And it's in God's grace that he has made provision through Christ that a person can believe, repent and believe the gospel, is what Jesus said. Repent and believe the gospel. That is, you recognize your sinfulness, your separation from the holy God, and, and uh, you turn to Christ in faith as the only one, is the only one who can save you. And the one who is willing to save you. You know, I, we have an international ministry at our church, and when I have the chance to share with them, because they're unbelievers, many of them from all different countries, I tell them, you know, I understand that people want you to think that there are many ways, and there's not. But the good news about that is you only need one. <laughs> and we want you to know what it is. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? It's, it's through Jesus Christ. And the beauty of his forgiveness, the fact that we can be reconciled to God, is that is that there's not going to be a video at the end of life in heaven of all that you've done. That's why he died. <laughs> he died to take care of that. He died as our substitute so that, thank God, that when God sees my life, he sees the righteousness of Christ, something that I don't deserve at all. But that's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God that extended to us. You know, folks, you understand this, that... that when you're regenerated, when you're made new in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, what are you? You're, you're a new creature. You're a new person. God makes a radical change in your life. You had a conscience before, but, but now, Romans 9.1, help us understand, you have a, an enlightened conscience. Okay? You think differently because now your conscience is informed through the Word of God. Your conscience is informed through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So you, you think differently. You, you have an understanding that you didn't have before. The, the Word of God. I mean, how many times have I talked to people who said, I used to read the Bible all the time and I didn't understand it. And then, what happened? They were regenerated. Now they have the Holy Spirit. And now they can understand things that prior they could read the same things, but it was just foreign to them what the Word of God meant. As a, as a believer, the Word of God now is understandable. That's not to say, as Paul says, there are some things, or Peter, there are some things that are difficult to understand. But God has given us His Word, not so that it's just all easy, but so that we would study it. We would be passionate about it. We would want to learn it and, and, and uh, understand the mind and the heart of God. And so it is through the Holy Spirit that we have this privilege with God's Word and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And you guys, I don't know about you, but just contemplating that the Holy Spirit indwells me and indwells you, 
So when I have somebody come in and they profess to know Christ, but they continue to live in perpetual sin, and they just say, I can't help it, I say, then you're unconverted. Now, I'm, not making, I'm just saying, in light of what they've told me, that can be the only response, right? Only God knows their heart. I'm just saying, in light of what they say, because the, the believer's no longer in bondage to sin. And you have the Holy Spirit. You guys, that's God in you. So is your life different going from being an unbeliever to a believer? I mean, oh my word. How, how much different could it be going from somebody who does not have God and dwelling in them to one who does? I mean, it's pretty remarkable. It's pretty incredible. And I tell people all the time, listen, as a Christian, the resources God has given to us are beyond our ability to fully comprehend. They're so great. They're so great. As a believer, the church plays a prominent role in our lives, right? I mean, the, the, the church is essential that we come together. And, and Hebrews uh, 3.13 and 10, 24, 25 talk, talks about how the, the church, we're a blessing to each other. We encourage each other. I, you know, I've been talking to Rodney, you know, as he walks through a difficult time with his wife's health. And I've lived that world. And, and the church played such a, a huge role in that. That we encourage one another, we minister to one another, we help each other. When we're struggling with sin, we come alongside. There are so many elements of the church that are absolutely critical in the life of the believer. And so, uh, you know, Jeremiah 24-7, Ezekiel 36-26, it talks about we have a new heart. Uh, you know, David, in Psalm 51, create in me what? A clean heart. And, and so God has done remarkable things in our lives. And God has provided us resources that, that are beyond comprehension. But we still have an element of unredeemed flesh. So when God saved you, the slate of your mind was not wiped clean. You know that. Yeah. Right? The slate of your mind, you still have baggage there. Right? Now you guys, if you just let your mind go wherever it will naturally go, where does it tend to go? I mean, you have to tell me awful things, okay? But I'm saying, it, the mind will gravitate to things of the flesh. It will just, it will just tend to do that. I, I don't mean that it necessarily gravitates like to the awful and moral things, but it might. But, but our, our flesh, it, our minds will tend to gravitate to uh, self-centeredness. You know, thinking about ourselves, or this person treated me wrong. And then how do we often respond when, when people treat us wrong? It's kind of hard. You know, ironically, in 1 Peter 2, we're taught that, that actually when you're treated unfairly, God says, I've ordained that in your life because it's an incredible opportunity for you to demonstrate your faith in God. 1 Peter 2, it'll just rip your heart up, by the way, <laughs> when it just comes to the practical elements of life. Because he truly says that. I mean, he says, this finds favor with God. For the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. But you guys, in the midst of suffering unjustly, well, what do we want to say? It's not fair. That's <laughs> not fair. It's not, you know, and just in case we didn't get it, as, as Peter continues, he reminds us, you know, Christ uh, never sinned. There was no deceit found in him. He was perfect. And what he's, the point being, that's not you and me. <laughs> and then he says, while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. 
while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And you see, it's a whole different perspective, but you guys, our minds left to themselves. Where do they go? Poor me. It's easy to get consumed with things and then justify sinful attitudes and actions in relationship to that. So while we have been dramatically changed, we're now in this process of growing sanctification of learning to think like a believer. So with that in mind, I'm going to walk through what I've called love and responsibilities for the Christian mind. I'm sure you can find more. And even as I share these, some of them you will see that they're very similar in some respects. But let's begin with number one. We're to be renewed in our minds. Romans 12, 2, I suspect is familiar to most. It says, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now understand, he says, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Why? So that we can prove what the will of God is, <laughs> That's, which is good, acceptable, perfect. So the idea of being transformed, being renewed in our mind, is so that Every moment of every day, we understand what God's will and purpose for my life is as I walk through the various events and challenges and trials and temptations of the day. It's so that I'm learning to think as God intends me to think. In Ephesians 4.23, it says that, He's, Paul says, and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, I want you to look at these verses. So if you want to look up Ephesians chapter 4, because I want to look before and after that statement when it talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, it says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. We talked about that last night. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Folks, the reality is, is as you're renewed in your thinking, you learn what it means to put on the new self. If you're not consistently renewed in your thinking, you're not going to put on the new self. You're just not going to do it. You may give it an effort now and again. Oh, I know it. I need to get back to reading my Bible. I know it. I know it. It's not just reading the Bible. People can read the Bible a whole life and go to hell, frankly. The issue is that it's the God's Word that, that is instructed by His Spirit that changes the way we think, that affects the way we live. And so if your mind is in the gutter, well, of course, we'll talk about that later. Of course you're going to sin. 
If your mind is not consistently thinking about the things of God, of course you're going to be self-centered. You're inclined to that. But you don't have to be there. But men, I'm telling you, it doesn't just happen. I mean, God in His grace saves us. He provides all the resources that we need. It's not complicated. But it does require responsibility. It does require commitment and effort. Jesus, when he talked about discipleship, did he talk about it as it's kind of a soft, easy deal? He said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Why does he say that first? Because we are the biggest problem to ourselves. Deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the first thing the apostle tells us is be renewed. An interesting expression. It really does literally mean precisely what it says. It means renew or being made new again. It suggests restoration to a previous condition that once obtained. It suggests that there has been a departure from that condition and that what we need is to be brought back to it. He continues, it is really the continuous present. Paul says that they must go on being renewed in this way. In other words, we continue, our, our minds continue to grow and learn to submit to God's word and be absorbed with God's word so that we then in turn live consistent with God's word. Tim Challies in an article called A Darkened Mind says, through the rest of life, you are faced with the constant challenge. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This choice is set before you each day. Will you allow the world to conform your mind, or will you invite God to transform your mind? To not choose is to make a choice. The world is so immersive, so powerful, and so present that unless you actively resist it, you will inevitably be conformed to it and can be consumed by it. I mean, that's the, just the truth. If, if you are casual in your Christian life, if you are inconsistent in your spiritual priorities, then men, you will reflect the world. And your life will be the roller coaster. And we see it all the time, right? That's why we have biblical counseling. Is, is the, you have this roller coaster. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's bad. And, and you guys, you think that God intends that? He intends that we continue to grow, not without struggles, but that we're continuing to grow in, in being renewed in our minds. The second point is that we are to love God with all of our minds. We're to love him with all of our minds. You know the greatest commandment, right? Repeated many times through scripture, Matthew 22, 37. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Mark 12, 30, same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and then with all your strength. Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then it says your neighbor is yourself. So here's the deal, guys. That is one easy verse to say and to talk about. But is there anybody that truly loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's something that we pursue and we understand that that's so vital in the Christian life. 
but it, like so many things in Christianity, it's just easy to talk about it and move on rather than stopping and saying, now wait a minute. What does it look like if I'm learning to love God with all of my mind? I mean, what does that look like? What would be warning signs in my life that it's not happening? What would be encouraging signs that it is happening? You know, Jesus said some really hard things in his life to us. Really hard things. Luke 14, 26 is one of those. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Meditate on that one for the rest of your life. I mean, those are pretty stark words. If he doesn't hate, and you guys, we know that he wants us, we're supposed to have love and respect for moms and dads. We're supposed to love our wives with a sacrificial love. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, those are powerful, powerful words. The idea is, it's, it's a contrast. It's that your love for God and my love for God must far exceed my love for any other person, including myself. In fact, I truly think that we are the biggest obstacle to that. Our love for God should so far exceed all of those other loves, even for our children, our spouses. Now, you guys, I, I really believe when we love God right like that, that our love for our children and our love for our spouses and our love for our parents are exactly what they should be. The love is exactly what God intended. And it's a beautiful, obedient love. But our love for God has to far exceed. And, you know, if, if that's not the case, then then the reality is those other things in our lives, we could call them idols. They're idols. You know, I talk to couples often in premarital counseling. And, you know, I talk to a couple that, that these kids on their own, you know, they prayed and prayed for years because they wanted to get married. Prayed and prayed, wanted to get married. And then God brings them together. And now they're so excited about getting married. You think they have time for God? <laughs> They can find hours to talk to each other, even if they're out of town. They can find hours to be together and spend time together. But I talked to them about the time. How about, how about your personal time in the Word, your personal time, so that you can be who God wants you to be? How about the time you spend together in the Word? How about the spiritual priorities of serving in the life of the church? They get so consumed with God's gracious gift that they make it an idol. And in just a moment of time, they love that gift more than they love God. Or at least that's a demonstration of what goes on, right? It's easy to happen. It's easy to happen. And, you know, when you go through the hard times, it's part of when you learn, do I, have my, do I love God appropriately? You know, for me, and the loss of my wife, you know, as I stood there and watched her, and I knew this is it. Boy, I'd never forget driving home from Dallas in my truck by myself. Because they didn't expect my wife to die. And I walked into that house. This is a new day. 
This is a new day. Now the question is, who did I love more? Did I trust God? If you don't love God more than every other person in your life, then in the difficult times of life, you'll become angry or bitter or frustrated or whatever. Why? Because you don't trust him. And we'll see this as we continue to walk through this, you guys. Your love for God has to be greater than your love for any other thing, including yourself. And if you learn to love God or begin the process of loving God in that way, then you will establish right priorities, whether it's easy or not, whether it's convenient or not, whether there are other obstacles in your life, because your love for God will define the priorities of your life. And if your love for God is not greater than all other things, then, you know, well, I mean, my business is just really busy right now. And you know the kids, they just take a lot of time. You know, we've got soccer and baseball and this and that and the other thing, and gee, I just can't fit, and I'm just struggling to fit it in. It's like, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's allowing other things to take the priority of your life. And I think it's, it's been well said that, that believers often are, are taken off track just because of the multitudes of things in their life that are not inherently bad. They just absorb so much time that there's no way you can maintain biblical priorities. There's no way. And so you end up in a mess. So loving God with all your heart, your soul, with your strength and your mind. Number three, we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, it says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And then it says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You understand, as you're filled with the knowledge of the word, or of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, then you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And then it says, why? You continue to increase in the knowledge of God. How does it happen? In Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You guys, you cannot be spiritually sustained by just going to church on Sunday and benefiting from Dan Kirk's study of the word. Don't misunderstand. You need to benefit from that, and you will. But if that's what you think will sustain you so that you can both think right and live right, you are, you're deceived. It won't happen. Men, the Word of God needs to be a priority in your life and the study of God's Word. I, I think it's kind of strange sometimes the perspective we have of God's Word, even the reading and studying of it. Okay? I mean, this is really not that big a book. You know that. Okay? Just, just make sure that's clear because... Uh, like sometimes we get these weird ideas. Like if I said, listen, I want you to go home and I just want you to read through the book of Genesis. Just get the big picture of it. I mean, what would be the most likely response back to me if I said that? Ah! I mean, dude, that's 50 chapters. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Is that not awful? I mean, even when you look at 50 chapters, I mean, I don't look how many pages it is. 43, that'd really knock you out. <laughs> I mean, that's rough. 
That's rough. I mean, isn't it? But isn't it strange? I mean, for whatever reason, there's often this really bizarre perspective about the Word of God. I mean, 50 chapters, it, it'd do your heart good to just read the whole thing, just to have it in its context. I mean, there can be a benefit to doing that. I'm not saying you have to do it all. I'm just saying it's not that complicated. Or, or you take one of the epistles. You guys, I, I mean, when you get an email, do you open it and read the first paragraph and then close it till the next day? Don't want to get overwhelmed. It's a letter for crying out loud. Yeah, I mean, you just read it. You just read it. But for some reason, when we come to the scripture, it's like this, it's this overwhelming task. My word, it's not. God has given us his word. It's a gift. He's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can understand it. Because I'm not opposed to breaking down it in small pieces and studying it deeply. But, but read it. Read it with a desire to understand it. Or, or how about the minor prophets? Woo! You know, you ever get to the minor prophets? What do you do? Say, God, help me to get somewhere else fast. I have no idea what these guys are talking about. Rather say, God, they're obviously here for a reason. Help me to begin to learn the context for these books, where they fit into biblical history so that they mean something to me. But you guys, I'm telling you, it seems to me, this could be an overstatement, but it seems to be that most Christians are unwilling to put in the time to learn it. They'd rather go ask Dan Kirk or somebody else to tell them what it means and not, not get consumed with the effort that it requires to grow in their understanding of the word. But you guys, God's word makes it clear that if you want to be able to live out his will, you have to be consumed with the word of God. It has to richly dwell within you. Reading the Bible in the morning, if you don't remember it two hours later so that it's making an impact in the rest of your day, is of no great value. God's intent was never an assignment that we fulfill and then we go on with our day to do the things that we have planned. The idea is that we come to his word, we learn, we memorize, we meditate, and I'll get into that more in this next session, so that we carry it with us through the whole day, so that we're spiritually thinking for the entire day. We have to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Number four, we need to be humble in our minds. Be humble in our minds. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. It says, But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And, and you guys, again, it, there's just that challenge for us to be self-focused. And so we have to have a, a humble mind. We have to be willing to consider other people as important in their needs and get beyond ourselves. I tell people in the midst of their trials, don't lose sight of the ministry around you because what happens in the midst of trials? Who do you think about? But you guys, God didn't bring a trial so that you would just think about you. Trials are going to provide opportunities that you otherwise would not have had. But when we get consumed with self, we don't even recognize the opportunities. You know, as Philippians goes on in verses 5 to 11, it says, Have this mind or attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but uh, made himself nothing, humbled himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then God exalted him. 
Carl Truman says this, in this passage, the essence of the Christian mind is not cast in epistemological categories, which probably doesn't help you right there. In other words, the Christian mind is not ultimately about the question of how we know things. Nor is the Christian mind about knowing the latest material on the most recent Christian fad or talking point. The Christian mind here has little to do with those things we find most interesting and exciting in the world around us. And there's nothing here about relevance in the way that most of us might conceive of that term. Rather, the accent here is on humility. It is not exciting. It is not glamorous. It is not something we naturally desire for ourselves. And yet here it is. The Christian mind is above all a humble mind. Well, humility of mind means that then when you're offended, you don't immediately begin to focus on yourself. You continue to look at people and love people and serve people, even those who have offended you. You see the world as Christ did. I mean, Christ on the cross, think about it. Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. I, and I think, what did they think they were doing? I mean, they really convinced themselves they're not killing the Messiah. But they were. You know, when I think of, this has been on my mind in recent couple of weeks about God's patience, slow to anger. And you realize that when he talks about God being slow to anger, that's when people, as a general rule, are absolutely rebelling against the holy God. And he's being patient with them. I mean, they're being awful, rotten, and we struggle with that. And he extends patience to them. I mean, we struggle being patient when circumstances are good. <laughs> Somebody offends us a little bit, says a little thing, or whatever, you know. And it's, you know, humility of mind means that I consider other people as more important than myself. And, and, and that even means those that I might struggle with more than others, right? Humility. We're to have uh, uh, unity of mind among believers. Unity. This is a huge deal in the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 1.10, it says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Romans 12, 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Romans 15, 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Unity among believers. Now that's not uniformity. Okay, That is, we don't think the same about everything. We are different people, different interests, okay? uh, different personalities, right? But when it comes to Scripture, as believers, unity is essential on the fundamental truths of the Scriptures. And you know what? There may be some nuances that we, we may not line up exactly the like, uh, alike, but you guys, those ought not to divide the church. I think with Jesus in the, the high priestly prayer in John 17, he makes a big deal about unity. Unity in the church is a testimony to the world that there's a living God. Why is that? Because unity is impossible. I mean, how easy is it to get into conflict? I mean, it just doesn't take much, right? 
it just does not take much, and we can, you know, we can be going kind of south with a relationship with somebody. It, I mean, it can happen just like that. Well, I think it's been well said that what God makes one, the enemy will tirelessly try to make two or more. And don't you know that that would be his great delight, that is the enemies, to divide the church? And how does it happen? Just little differences. Typically not over major doctrines. Oh, gee, you hear Dan say that? No, I don't think you need to say that. And you, you, don't, you, you don't want to be unkind, so you say, well, I know what you're saying. Instead of saying, whoa, 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 don't, you, don't let me talking like that. <laughs> That's sinful thinking. Listen, honestly, brother, I love you, but if you have an issue with Dan Kirk, you need to go talk to him. Don't talk to me about it. I mean, unity is essential in the life of the church. We're unified in our thinking because why? We're being filled with the knowledge of God's word and his will, and we understand how critical that is in the testimony of life of the church and in the context of the world. Number six, we should have peace in our minds. Peace. Now, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, you guys know what the verse is right before that? Be anxious for nothing. I love that verse. And so when I get somebody that comes into my office and they're struggling with anxiety, they'll sit down and, and uh, I'm not really not being unkind. I'm going to help them with this, okay? <laughs> All right. I truly will. But, but uh, I'll ask them. I'll say, well, how does it make you feel if I uh, quote Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing? And their heads go down. Really, no kidding. I mean, like to hit the desk. Makes me feel awful. Is that I know because you know it, right? You know, you're not supposed to be anxious for anything. Ah! And saying that just makes it worse, right? Yes! That's that I know. I'm going to give you hope. Because <laughs> you don't start in verse 6. I mean, go back to verse 4. That'll help. That'll help. To set a context for how we get this peace that passes all understanding. This peace that guards our hearts and minds. So you guys, in verse 4, for the believer, what does it say? Rejoice always. I love that verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's like, it's a short verse. Did it really need to repeat itself? <laughs> Think about it. It's a pretty short verse. Why does he repeat himself? I mean, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You ever met a happy, depressed person? Because life becomes overwhelming. And they just keep cycling down into this awful, distressing pattern. You guys, for believers, for believers, when we start to get disoriented, we need to go back. And we need to remember, what are the reasons I have to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, what are some of those reasons? This is interactive now. The next verse. Salvation. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Let your salvation be known. Yeah. The Lord is near. 
The Lord has redeemed me. You guys understand? You, uh, you go back to the gospel. Somebody was saying, we, we always got to go back to the gospel. Believers need to keep going back to the gospel. What did Jesus do? It was Joe that was saying that. We keep going back to the gospel and what God has done. And you guys were reminded of the many things that we have to rejoice over. The kind of provision of God. Why did Israel get in so much trouble? She failed to remember all that God had done. And if you fail to remember all that God has done, then in the midst of the circumstances of life, you begin to despair. You begin to get overwhelmed by things. And pretty soon you get into big trouble. And so you go back to rejoicing. And let's just take some time and just talk about the incredible things God has done. Reflect on the past and what he's done so that we can be reminded that his purposes are good and he will fulfill them in the future. And then uh, the, the presence of God. And then it says, don't be anxious for anything, but what? By prayer and supplication, bring your request before God. And so the nice part is, is God doesn't say there's not things that could cause us anxiety. He says, don't choose to be anxious. Bring those issues to me. And it says not only bring them to them in supplication, but also with thanksgiving. And you guys, here's one of the keys in the Christian life, guys, is that once we bring those things to God, we've got to move to thanksgiving. And, and we've got to express appreciation and gratitude to God for all that he has done. Because, again, we're remembering who he is and what he's like. And it's setting the context for the troubles that we get in. And you guys, it's in that context that as we bring those to God with thanksgiving, that it continues by offering us the, the hope that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, when it says it surpasses all comprehension, it makes no sense. In the midst of your circumstances, apart from God, you have every reason to be completely stressed. But because of God, and because of who he is, the peace of God guards, what? Your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But you've got to remember verse 8, because I'll tell you, what happens for a lot of people is they get through that, and they pray, and they thank God, and then what happens to their mind? Their mind goes right back to it. It begins cycling. We're going to talk in the next session about how do you stop that. Because hmm. it'll make you crazy. When the thought, they just keep coming back. And it's like, well, what do I do with that? I try and I try and try. You know? So we'll talk about that next session. But you guys, the, that last verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things and that's what we'll talk about in our next session for the believer for the believer God intends you to have peace in both your mind and your heart that's part of your testimony that in the midst of the difficult circumstances of life you have you have peace and it's not because you know how things are going to work out it's not because things are easy it's not because it's without great grief and loss it's because you have a context of who God is and a love for God that sets it all into a context where you are able to trust him. In fact, the next one is we're to be steadfast in our minds, number seven. Steadfast in minds. What time am I supposed to be done? I have a clock, but I don't remember the end time. Don't worry about time. Just keep going. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll try not to go too slow. Be steadfast in mind. Isaiah 26.3 it says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. 
He trusts in you. Steadfast is to be made uh, secure or, or to be made firm. Uh, in Oswald's, Oswald's commentary, he says, to experience the security of God's city, uh, one thing is required, a fixed disposition of trust. This is the opposite of James' double-minded man or Jesus' servant of two masters. This person has cast himself upon God without any reservation. To trust one's ability partly and God partly is the surest prescription for insecurity and anxiety. That person will never know the wholeness of peace, which having all his commitments in one place may mean. And so if, if you sort of trust God and you sort of trust yourself, you have nowhere again to go. I mean, do you believe it? It's interesting. When I talk to people about anxiety and about trusting the Lord, one of the questions I'll ask them, we'll talk about is, I mean, is it that you don't trust God or is it that you're afraid that what God does is going to be something that you don't want? And you'd be amazed how often it's the second one. I mean, it's, I'm afraid that, that God's plan may not be what I want it to be. That's a dangerous road to walk down right there. So do you really think that your plan is better than God's? I mean, really? The sinful creature dictating to the creator the best plan? That's bad. That's bad. You guys, I suspect when you wrote out the plan for your life or dreamed about it when you were young, for those that can remember those days, <laughs> I'm guessing it didn't take the same path that you kind of dreamed about or thought. That in the course of life, we go all kinds of different paths, things that we just never anticipated, right? Because God is the one who orchestrates our life for his good purposes and for his glory. For Christians to not trust him is a lack of understanding of what God's like. Uh, what it is, is it's diminishing God and elevating man. As long as I keep, you know, that whole issue of the mind, as long as I keep in perspective who I am in relationship to who God is, I should trust him absolutely. Whatever road he takes me down, he is a good God. He is a righteous God. The truth is, if you were God, that's a scary thought, but if you were God with the perfect righteousness of God, you would not change anything. That's right. God has never made an error. He knows all things and all things possible. He's perfect in every respect, you guys. So, so the steadfast of mind, you keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. And when you feel in your mind these questions about what God is doing, confess it as sin. God, forgive me that I would stand in judgment of the great and holy God. Bring my heart and mind in submission to you because I know that you're a good God. And if you take me down difficult... There's so many people... I talked to one yesterday. You know, they're, they're concerned with what might come next in their life. And I remember a time when I was like that. I remember a time, you guys, that, that uh, my son and now daughter-in-law were in this awful car accident. It was just awful. Unconscious for weeks and it just changed our lives. Okay, So he's still affected by that. But in God's grace, he... He preserved his life, and he thinks right. He's got five kids. 
But there are still challenges with all of that. But I remember my wife at that time was very sick, and there were difficult things going on in virtually every area of my life. And I remember, I remember that I began to think in anticipation of what the next thing might be. Like I tried to prepare my heart, you know? And I was doing it with good intents, but it's a bad idea. Okay, a couple of reasons. Number one, how could I possibly guess what the Lord's going to do next? And number two, how helpful is that going to be? Right or wrong? At the end of the day. Because the truth is, it's God who's going to be my strength in whatever he takes me through. God is my provision. I don't have to worry about what he's going to bring into my life, difficult or easy or whatever. I just need to trust him and have confidence. You know what? If he takes me down a, a hard road, it's going to be for glorious reasons. And he, he will be my refuge and strength, my very present help in times of trouble. And I can be confident of that. And you know what? Once I, I recognized the problem, dealt with it in my heart, <laughs> it was just relieving I'm sorry, God, I, I'm, this thinking is off. Our mind's going to be such a problem. And when I let that go, I just need to trust God and, and trust him for whatever he brings in. I don't have to fear what it is. We need to set our minds on the spirit. Number eight, Romans 8, 5, it says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. All of life is to be seen through spiritual eyes. We don't have some elements of life that are spiritual, devotions, you know, church and all of that, and then others like secular work, school, hobbies. You guys, the, the Christian sees everything through spiritual eyes. To become a Christian, uh, Douglas Moose says, to become a Christian means to be transferred from the realm dominated by the flesh to the realm dominated by the spirit. John Murray says, in like manner, to mind the things of the Spirit is to have the things of the Holy Spirit as the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. And the mind of the Spirit is the dispositional complex, including the exercises of reason, feeling, and will, patterned after and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That we see everything different. You see your job different, your relationship to your boss or your relationship to your employees differently. You see your neighborhood differently. You see the people at the gas station different. Everything is different because of the relationship that you have with our Lord. The next one closely related is, is set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. In, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it says, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and what? Who set their mind, their minds on earthly things. They set their minds on earthly things. Those are enemies of the cross, enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to keep seeking the things above. We're to set our minds on things above. F.F. Bruce says, don't let your ambitions be earthbound. Set on transitory and inferior objects. 
Don't look at life and the universe from the standpoint of these lower planes. Look at them from Christ's exalted standpoint. Judge everything by the standards of that new creation to which you now belong, not by those of the old order to which you have said a final farewell. And so when you set your mind on things above, when you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, man, what does that look like? Well, it, it means that when you get up in the morning on a day like this, and you spend time with the Lord, and you contemplate the day, and, and you consider the different things that are going to take place in the day, at the same time, at least for me, it's also a time to say, Lord, these are things that I anticipate happening today. But I don't know what all you intend to accomplish, both in my life and through my life. And Lord God, as I approach this day, and I'll think through and pray through the different circumstances that I'm aware of, God, help me to have spiritual eyes to see. Help me to recognize opportunities. Help me to have the courage to say the things that I need to say at the appropriate times. Help me not to get so caught up with myself and my schedule that I fail to see opportunities for ministry. Now listen, guys. That is essential for a biblical Christian. Every day, that is anticipating what God wants to accomplish in the day. As you set that framework of daily desiring to be obedient in every opportunity you have through the course of the day, that will prepare you to deal with the unexpected trials and the temptations of life. But as a general rule, if you're not striving to think biblically to prepare each day for what God has in store to see every opportunity, then when the trials and temptations come, you will be ill-equipped to deal with them. God didn't intend Christianity to be something to pull out in the midst of the difficult times of life. He intended it to be something that's lived out through the course of life and then those patterns are what are so essential in dealing with the, the more complicated and difficult times of life. When you get up in the day, when you get up in the morning, are you thinking biblically? Are you thinking biblically about your day? Are you thinking about what God wants to accomplish in those meetings you have and praying for those people, saved or unsaved, or who knows, you know? It's, it's learning. To, and I think the same thing about going to church. You know, it's easy to go to church and just think about, I'm going to church and we're going to sing and pray, worship the Lord and go home without going, thinking, Lord, as I walk into church, I do want to go and worship you and I want to listen and learn. But Lord, I recognize that I may pass somebody in a hallway. I may sit by somebody that could be unsaved, could be a Christian that's facing an extraordinarily difficult time in life. And and frankly, it's easy to get caught up in my schedule and what I'm planning on doing and just fail to even recognize the opportunity. God, give me a heart that sees the people around me and seeks to engage to make a difference in the name, in your name, and for your glory. Because I know that God gives you work and we need it, but, but recognizing that he doesn't give you all those people to interact with just because. It just doesn't. They're, they're people. See them as God sees them. Make a difference as God would want you to make a difference. And again, we're going to talk more practically about that tomorrow, ways that you might consider that. Um, prepare your minds for action, number 10. Prepare your minds for action.
Therefore, in First Peter 1.13, therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, oftentimes we miss countless spiritual opportunities. Why? We're, we're just not ready. We're just not ready. We're just, we're, we're just not thinking about the possibility of what God might want to do. John's Bible says this. He contrasts the state of a man before regeneration with his state as regenerate. The dominion of sin darkens the understanding, but in a state of grace, the veil has been removed and believers are children of the light. In a state of wrath, the dominion of sin defiles the conscience, whereas a Christian's conscience has been cleansed. Besides that, those who are enemies of Christ, refusing to do his will, are made his friends and are unable to subject themselves to his reign. In terms of regeneration, the Spirit takes what was a heart of stone and thaws and breaks it as hard as it was and makes it to dissolve in the breast of a sinner in godly sorrow. Finally, the dominion of sin misplaces the affections, but sanctification sets them right. Flavel concludes by noting that while Christians are not entirely cured of sin in this life, nevertheless the cure has begun and daily advances towards perfection. Christians are on the way that leads to heavenly life where the presence of sin in any form will be extinguished forever. So when it says prepare your minds for action, notice it says keep sober in spirit, that is keep well balanced, think right, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, you and I, we ought to be living, living for that day that we're going to see Jesus face to face. I, I believe for those of you that are married, or I know some getting married, in Ephesians 5, when it talks about marriage, and it talks about you're supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church, then it goes on to, to, to really describe that when Christ, it says Christ sanctifies her, sets her apart, washing her with water with the word, to present her to himself, the church, in all her glory without stain or, or wrinkle. That's a picture of sacrificial love. You understand that? That is, men, you are responsible to prepare your wife to see Jesus. You're preparing her to present her to, to Christ. I mean, ultimately, that's who she's going to be, right? Bride of Christ. We're, we're preparing to one day be the bride of Christ. And, and so it's in that context we prepare our minds. We think about what God intends. And, uh, and we live in, in submission to him in that regard. Number 11, bring every thought captive. Bring every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And again, we're going to talk about that more tomorrow as far as how do you take every thought captive to obedience of Christ when there's so many distractions and our minds start spinning on things that are just not helpful. But, but the picture here, the verse, has clear military overtones. The idea is that there is a battle that rages, okay? There's a battle raging. Uh, I know some of you guys have been in the military uh, and some may still be here. Um, I, I think it's easy to live the Christian life as though we're in the reserves. What's the difference between being in the reserves and being active duty shipping out? What's the difference? Preparedness. What else? Danger. 
Well, it's a whole different context, right? I mean, it's one thing to go out here to uh, somewhere in Oklahoma and practice. And it's another thing to know that somebody really is trying to kill me. It's a whole different world. I think sometimes Christians live like we're in the reserves. But the battle is raging. And you guys, the, the world wants to diminish the, the truth of the knowledge of God. And we see it in a lot of different ways. Like even the, the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. How many of you would like to go to heaven? Come on! Just say this prayer after me. <laughs> is that the gospel? No. That is not the gospel. You have any idea how many people believe that they're going to heaven because they said what somebody told them to say and they believe it? Is that not tragic? That's awful. I'm telling you guys, there's this huge battle that's raging. And we need to be careful because there's this great opposition to the knowledge of God. And, and, and uh, the denial of health is becoming, it's not that it hasn't always been an issue, but it's getting, you know, the idea that love wins. Rob Bell. You know, this move towards universalism. I mean, come on. Come on. We know that God loves everybody, and at the end, it's, you know, we may believe different things, but God gets that. He does get it. That's why he sent his son. There's one way. There's one way. Now, you guys, how people going to love you for that? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, but God will redeem some, that you tell. There's going to be a lot of people that don't, they, they don't want to hear that, and they will hate you, and they will think that you're a hate monger. They will think you're an isolationist. And they will think that you have totally misrepresented God. But we're to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. You know, the denial of the integrity of scriptures, you know, whole concepts now of open theism and, you know, God is essentially responding to you. He's watching, you know, he doesn't know perfectly what you're going to do so you can have your free will. Can you imagine God being subject to our will? That's awful. That's awful. It's not the way, but you guys, that's what the world's trying to say. They're trying to pacify it and make God more appealing. God is a holy God, and he doesn't need us to justify him. Right. It's our responsibility to accept and uphold the truth of God's word. How about this whole separation of Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord? I mean, how can you confess him as Lord? They go together, guys. When you realize your sinfulness and you come to a holy God, you accept him as Savior and Lord. That's why you come to him. You're the problem. He's the solution. You come into in submission to him, and it's a glorious submission. Even when I talk about these things, you guys, about the God's word and our submission and our love for God's word, you guys, spending time in God's word ought not to be this, this uh, awful assignment that you have to fulfill, and it just, you feel good, because it's, you know, you, you, wait, I mean, 1 John 5, 3, it talks about our obedience to the Lord. It, it's not a burden. We can know it. We can delight in it. We can learn it. We can understand it. It ought to be great. I'm not saying there's not an element of discipline, but I do think it's more of a privilege that we that we enjoy it. It's, it's a good thing. There's a warning I want to give you. A warning as we come to the end. A challenge to believers to be sure to set your mind on God's interests, not your own. In Matthew 16, 21 to 23 from 
that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. You remember Peter? Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. You know, that's always a bad thing to do. Right? <laughs> he began to rebuke him and he said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What's going on in Peter's mind? I mean, this idea that the Messiah, Christ, the King, is going to suffer in such a tremendous way. I mean, I talk to Christians. I mean, God can't make, God can't want me to have to live my life like this. I said, really? Have you read about his son? Have you read about his son? Don't tell me God can't want you to go down a difficult road. But it is for good purposes. You would trust him and obey and love him and serve him. Oh, I can't even imagine this moment. And when you read First and Second Peter, you can just tell that Peter never forgot it. He turned to, and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Why? For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. You're not thinking about God's plan. You're thinking about your own plan. You guys, we have to set our mind on God's interest, not our own. Life is, in Christ, life is no longer about us. It's about the glory of God. It's the privileged relationship that we have to be the children of God. It's it's that, you know, 1 Corinthians 2, what does it say? We now have the mind of Christ. That is through God's word and through his spirit, we can understand the things of God, what it means to know him and what it means to walk with him. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, it says, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of God. We have to set our minds right. We have to learn to think biblically in the course of all of our life and it needs to be every day and then I'm telling you when the temptations come you have a pattern that God has given to us that provides victory. When the trials come that are overwhelming you have a pattern Developed that will be essential so that you can walk through that trial in a path of victory. But you have to establish that path and, and you have to establish the priorities that will foster the renewing of your mind. You have to. And I'm telling you, if you let it go, I'm sorry, but it's trouble. I mean, it's just trouble in every respect. So the next session, I know I'm in a long time. Thank you for paying attention. But the next session... You guys, I want to talk about, okay, what does it look like to train the mind? Okay, what specifically can we do? What are, what are, how can we deal with the temptations, the thoughts that plague us that are just really destructive and frustrating? We'll, we'll talk about some of those things, and hopefully that will be helpful. But thanks for paying attention. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for the time. Thanks for your word. Thank you that you're patient, God. Thank you, God, that you have allowed us to be your children. Thank you that you've given to us your Holy Spirit and your word. Thank you that by your grace we can understand the truth of your word now. Thank you that 
that uh, even as you determined to save us in eternity past, so you determined the good works that you intend to accomplish both in and through our lives. Thank you, God, that you're patient, God, as we walk down this road. Help us, help us to grow in our love for you and our love for your word. God, help us to grow in ways that would please you. In the name of Jesus.